Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we will be looking at today, verses 12 through 18. The beautiful song the choir just sang was written by a man who was blind. He had experienced blindness and thought his blindness would be at least uh, inhibiting to him in so much of what he wanted to do with his life, but along the way he sensed that God was calling him to preach. And so he began his training to be a pastor, and along the way he met a young lady, he fell in love with her, and they got engaged to be married. When the time was approaching for their wedding, she concluded that she did not want to spend her life married to a man who was blind. So she called off the wedding, she broke the engagement, and in the midst of his grief, as he was grieving over his loss, he remembered the greatness of the love of God, that the love of God surpasses supremely every other love that we could ever experience and express in our lives, and he sat down and just a short period of time scratched out the words of this beautiful hymn, and it was presented beautifully by our choir. I don't know how many of you knew the background to that uh, marvelous song and the man who wrote it in the midst of his grief and sorrow that came to be a context for him to experience more deeply than he had ever experienced the greatness of the depths of the love of God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we bow before you today knowing that there is no love like your love. And you show us in your word very plainly that your love is shown to us in the wonderful and marvelous gift of your Son that you sent into the world to be the sacrifice for our sins. You make it clear to us that your love for us is costly. 
that in order for us to experience and then in order for us to express your love, the death of your son through the callous cruelty and condemnation of the cross was absolutely necessary. And yet through that dark night, when at midday darkness descended upon the earth and in the midst of that darkness you wore our sins upon yourself, you were demonstrating the greatness of your love for us. You were purchasing us through the shedding of your blood. You were offering yourself as a sacrifice for us. You were paying the price for our sin. So God, we, we give way beyond gratitude today for the greatness of your love. That when your love comes to us in Jesus by the power of your spirit and we experience that love and know that you are calling us to yourself, you begin to transform our lives. And you begin, us, you begin to call us compellingly to love you. To love you in the way that you have loved us. And out of the overflow of our love for you that we give to you when we worship you day by day and on the Lord's day when we gather, out of the overflow of that love, we are called by you and compelled by you to love others. To love foundationally our brothers and sisters in the local church to which you call us, where we share life together. And it is out of our love for you that you enable us and empower us to love each other. And it is our love for each other that becomes a fundamental foundational witness to the community of which we are a part. They will know that we are yours by our love. You've called us to shine the light of the gospel of your glory in the face of Jesus by living together in relationship to one another in a way that clearly demonstrates your love. So God, this morning, can I ask you, is that just an ideal? Is that some kind of pipe dream? Is that something that we read about in the Bible, but we are so incapable of that we don't see it in the church? Or is it the simple reality of life together among the people that belong to you in local bodies of believers? If, Lord, it is just an ideal, then we can close your book right now and we can walk out of here to do whatever we're wanting to do the rest of the day, but if this is real, then we ask you, fasten and focus our minds and hearts on your word so that we might hear your word and say yes to it as we bow in submission to its absolute authority and seek you through the power of your Holy Spirit.
to enable us and to empower us to live before the world in the church as true humans, what it really means to be yours and to live joyfully. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're uh, studying the Gospel Project in Sunday School, you know that we just began today a walk through the book of Joshua. I have had the privilege for the last seven or eight weeks of teaching at Guido Bible College. Last seven or eight weeks, I've had the privilege of teaching the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And I began this past Thursday night to begin another eight-week segment teaching uh, the history that's found in the Old Testament beginning with the book of Joshua. So I'm grateful to God that the Gospel Project has given us three or four weeks to get through Joshua because I had to teach the whole book of Joshua last Thursday night in one three-hour setting. It was very difficult to do. As we looked at the book of Joshua this morning in the Gospel Project, we, we heard God speaking His Word to Joshua. He was giving clear instructions to Joshua, and he's calling Joshua to obedience. That prompted in me some questions, some questions that I want to ask of myself, and they're questions that I want to ask of you at the beginning of this sermon this morning, and I want you to consider these questions, and I want to ask you before God to answer them honestly. The question generally is, how do you see the Bible? What is the Bible to you? I'm privileged to be a pastor of a church where, as far as I can tell, most of us who are members of this church believe the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, fully sufficient Word of God. We believe that it's the only absolute truth in the universe. We believe the Bible is breathed out by God and has brought to us as the Word of God that we do not doubt, we do not debate, we simply submit ourselves to God's Word as we listen to it and learn it and seek by the help of the Holy Spirit to live it. Do you believe that about the Bible? The truth is that there are many professing Christians all over the world that do not believe that about the Bible. Now, they will say that they believe the Bible is God's Word, but then when you press them, they will say things like this, the Bible contains the Word of God. That not everything in the Bible is inerrant and infallible. There are some things in the Bible that simply don't make sense. I agree with that. And there are some things in the Bible that I don't understand. I agree with that. And there are some things in the Bible that God would never tell people to do. I don't agree with that. Because the Bible doesn't just contain the Word of God. The Bible is the absolute truth that is God's Word. From Genesis 1-1 through the end of the book of Revelation. Do you believe that? There are others that say the Bible is God's Word in the sense that it points us to God. 
Not everything in the Bible is absolute truth, they would argue. But everything in the Bible, in some sense, is pointing us to God so that we can know something about who God is. And there are those who would say, actually, what the Bible is, is a collection of books that were written by human beings who were seeking to help us understand who God is from their perspective. So we have to read it as human beings and we have to apply it to our lives knowing that some of it we can receive and some of it we must reject. Where do you stand? When God began to speak to Joshua, he was speaking the absolute truth from him to Joshua that is non-negotiable, non-debatable. And by the Spirit of God, Joshua was called by God to say yes to God and to live in the way that God called him to live. Joshua is the Hebrew name for the name Jesus. Jesus, Joshua's successor, stood before his disciples and said, I have come that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be complete. God comes to us in Jesus to bring us through him into a relationship with God that produces a life of joy. Joyful living is not an option. It is a command. Joyful living is what separates believers from the rest of the world. We live in joy and with joy because Jesus lives in us and Jesus living in us produces that joy. No unbeliever can live joyfully. Every unbeliever, and if you're in that category, I want to talk with you for just a moment because if you're not a believer, you cannot know joy, you can't experience joy, and you can't express joy, you have to settle for something less than joy. So what you have to settle for is happiness. You have to look for things in your life that will make you happy. And this is what you find. You find that there are some things that you land on that make you happy for a few weeks, a few months, or a few years, and then they're gone. So what do you do? You find something else that you're chasing to make you happy. You're always looking for something to make you feel good about yourself, to make you feel good about where you are in life, to make you feel good in the midst of difficult circumstances and situations. You're having to chase something that will fill the empty void in your life that was intended to be filled by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God has come in Jesus to bring you joy. So would you today, if you're in that category of not being a believer, would you lay down whatever it is you're chasing? Because it will not produce, except for a short period. And look to Jesus alone 
based on what he's done for you to bring forgiveness of your sins, being raised from the dead to be the Lord of your life, would you today turn from the way you're living and turn to Jesus and say, you're Lord. And I'm bowing my whole life before you today. Now, believer, if God has come in Jesus Christ to bring us joy, both individually and collectively, where is it? Our lives have gotten to be so complex. Is yours? So complex. There's so many things that are bombarding us in our lives that our culture says these are necessary. And what is our answer? Well, yes, they're necessary. I want to fit in with other people. I don't want anybody to think that I don't want to belong. I want to be as actively involved in everything that I can be actively involved in. I want to chase everything there is to chase. And the result is that the joy that God intended us to enjoy becomes an ideal rather than a reality. If the Bible is the absolute truth of God, then the absolute truth of God is God designed you for joy. And this central section in Philippians, beginning in chapter 1, verse 27, and ending with our passage today, chapter 2, verse 18, It tells us what joy looks like when we're living in a pagan world, what joy looks like when we're living in a local church family, what joy looks like when we're truly human. And then he comes to this summary that is not only a summary, but a summons to what joy is all about wherever we are. So let's all together right now gather under this passage and let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts right now because what Paul does here is he gives us three simple characteristics of the joy-filled life. Three. So why don't I ask and you ask, are these characteristics characteristic of the way I'm living my life when I'm away from the church and when I'm a part of the church. And if they are not, then what would the Holy Spirit say to me today that would cause me to come to repentance so that I can enjoy this kind of joy-filled life? Number one, A life of joy is a life lived in obedience to God. We love to obey God. We long to obey God. Therefore, verse 12, because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, because of him purchasing us from our sin, delivering us from his wrath, because one day we will all declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
How are we to live now? Paul addresses this church as I think he addresses us this morning, speaking to believers as those who are beloved. That we're loved by God. We're loved intensely by God. And God loves us so much that he wants us to enter into that relationship with him that will be our, cause our experience of him to be the fullness of the experience of his love for us and in us that would bring us joy. So how does that happen? As you have always obeyed, obedience has characterized these people. As you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. There has to be, if we're going to have joy, there has to be consistency in our obedience. Now, you and I live in a pagan culture. I hope you agree with that. It's increasingly pagan. We work and live in pagan environments. And the truth is that in our kind of world, obedience is hard. There's all kinds of pressure that's impinging on us. Some of you face this every day of your life that causes you to compromise your obedience. Practically, it looks like this. You come to church on Sunday and attend Sunday school and you worship God and you come back on Sunday night to complete the worship of the Lord's day and the Spirit of God moves in your heart and the Spirit of God reveals areas in your life where you are compromising because you want to fit in and you're not obeying God and you walk out on Sunday night on your way home in your car. This week will be different and then Monday comes and then Tuesday and then Wednesday. When we're present... Present where the Spirit of God is present, we think, gathered with the people of God. We think about how we're living and what we're doing and where we're disobeying and where we're compromising. But when we're away, Paul says, no. Whether I am with you or not, no matter what is going on in your life, in every situation, in every circumstance, there is no situation in your life over which God is not fully sovereign. There is no circumstance in your life where God doesn't know every detail of everything that's going on and God's call to you and whatever the circumstance is, obey me. Listen to my word, learn my word. I don't know that you and I will ever be in any circumstance worse than the circumstance that Job found himself in, right? And Job says, even if he kills me, I will trust him. I will obey him. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Nothing brings greater delight to God than our obedience and nothing deepens that delight than our obedience in the midst of tough, trying circumstances and situations. Some of your environments 
settings, many days of your life where there are people around you that are drawing you away. They're instruments of the devil to tempt you to walk away from your love for and loyalty to Jesus. And you so much want to be accepted by them that you find yourself compromising. You find yourself caving into the pressures of others so that you're having to chase something less than joy, that happiness that they may offer you that fades away if you're a true believer because it can't give you what you are looking for. Not only must we know the necessity of being consistent in obedience, we must know the character of obedience. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This Word work out has the sense of working at it. It has the sense of expended energy and effort. This is hard. God has saved you by his grace. The Holy Spirit is living inside you. And Paul says to you, child of God, you've got to work at making sure that you are growing day by day in the grace and knowledge of Jesus that you're standing up for him, that you're holding up the gospel to others, even if it means you're isolated by them and insulated from them, even if it means that in some places you stand all by yourself. You've got to work at it. The word has to do with sweaty labor. A picture here is a picture of an athlete in a weight room. And he's lifting those weights, he's pumping that iron, and he's got to do a certain number of reps, and he gets to about three within the finish line, and he can barely lift those weights, but he presses on, sweat popping out all over his body. The image here is of a woman running a marathon, and she's getting near the finish line. She can see the tape, but she can barely breathe, and she wants to stop, but something deep in her says, press on. God puts us because he loves us in situations where we have to strive, we have to sweat, we have to pray, we have to push forward because God is showing us that he has more for us than where we are now. That there's greater joy than we know now. There's greater peace than we know now. And in the midst of whatever we're facing, it's in the midst of them that we trust him and cry out to him and press forward in faithfulness to him. That breakthrough comes and the joy begins to consume our souls. Work out your own salvation. This not only has to do with individuals, it has to do with people in the church. We don't ever do this alone. You do not know what I would give as a pastor if I knew for sure that every believer in this room, male and female, has around you people with whom you are nakedly honest about your spiritual struggles. 
that you're not pretending to be something you are not. That you have someone that you're bearing your soul to and you're asking them to pray for you. You are exemplifying before them your weaknesses because when you're weak, you're strong. Every church needs that. Men, who do you have like that in your life? Anybody? Women. This is easier for women. But I am not beyond believing that women are less pretentious than men. Women can hide behind their own sense of security when they're not secure at all, when we need each other and we need honesty with each other about where we are spiritually. So that together we can encourage each other in this labor of working out our salvation. Paul says with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling, my word. Well, you can't love God until you fear God. And when you know who God is, you tremble in his presence that he would love you the way he does. That he would come to you the way he does. What do we fear in the presence of God? What causes us to tremble? I don't know about you, but I can tell you what causes me to fear and tremble. It is failing him. It is getting to the end of the race and I can see the tape and I stumble all over myself and bring disrepute to the name of Jesus. Does that cause you to fear at all? I'll tell you what else causes me fear and trembling. Young believers. Young believers watching me. Seeing me. And coming to conclusions that would cause them to think, well, he's not what he says he is. Obedience has to be consistent has to be carried out in the context of wherever we are and whatever we're facing. It is hard work. It's expended energy. It is energetic effort. It is done with fear and trembling. But here's the promise. Here's the commitment of God. Look at it. For it is God who works in you. You're not doing this alone by yourself or even with others. God is at work in you. He's fulfilling his purpose in your life. He's not going to let go of you. He's not going to forsake you. He's not going to abandon you. He's working in you so that your joy might be increased as you're more focused and faithful to his purpose. To be faithful to his purpose is also to desire to bring him pleasure. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that his ultimate aim in life is to please God. What if you wrote that somewhere in the front of your Bible? What if you wrote that on a note card? I've made a commitment this year to memorize all the verses that we're memorizing month by month. And I found for me, it may not work for you, but I can only memorize when I write stuff down. So on my desk at home, I've got a stack of note cards where I'm writing these verses down. This month, I don't have to write that one down.
What if you had a note card that you kept in front of you where you read or study or your quiet time and you just put on it to please him? That your life is just consumed by pleasing him. Secondly, joyful living is not just the life of obedience, it's the life where we pursue holiness. We want to be pure before God. You know, I think we live in a culture where there are actually Christian people who want non-Christian people to think that they are more like the non-Christian people than because they want to be accepted by those non we. Sometimes I think we parade our sin in front of non-Christian people and we say, hey, I'm just like you. No, no. We've been set apart by God, filled with his Holy Spirit, anointed of his spirit to live lives that are different. And that begins, that begins in our homes and our families. And that is connected to how we live in the church. Holy living, pursuing purity. So Paul turns in verse 14. He's talking to believers in the church in Philippi. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. You want to live a pure life before God? Well, beloved, here's where it begins. You decide today by the help of the Holy Spirit to eliminate all grumbling and complaining from your life. All of it. The word grumbling describes an action. It's an action word. Now, it's one of those words that is intended to sound like what it is. There is an English word for that that I can't say because every time I try to pronounce it, I stumble all over myself. So in front of God and you, I'm not going to try it. But it just simply means the word represents what it sounds like. Here's the word. You will know what I'm saying. The Greek word is gongusmos. Gongusmos. Doesn't that word sound like grumbling? Gongusmos. 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 Hey. Do you know professing Christians in this church and other churches that every time you meet them, gone goosebumps, gone goosebumps, gone goosebumps, gone goosebumps. I'll tell you a preacher secret. I see those people. I exit stage left. Particularly on Sunday morning. I don't want to hear. Gone goosebumps, gone goosebumps, gone goosebumps, gone goosebumps. That kind of complaining and grumbling is found in the Bible when people do not like Jesus because he doesn't fit their understanding of who he's supposed to be as the Messiah, John seven twelve. 
It's found in Acts 6, 11, 6, 1, when these widows were being neglected and they just began to grumble and complain. It's found in 1 Peter 4, 9, when people are showing hospitality and nobody's recognizing them for hospitality. So rather than rejoicing in God, they just go on guzmos, go on guzmos, go on guzmos. What's the attitude of such a person? They're factious. They're selfish. They're conceited. They're arrogant because the heart of such a person is fixed only on themselves, so it can't be fixed on Jesus. There's no joy in their lives. There's not even happiness. Paul says, Paul says, if you want to pursue holiness, get rid of that. What are you going to put in its place? Well, he tells us that you may be blameless. Uh, blameless has to do with moral integrity. It's repeated in the next phrase that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Blameless and without blemish are the same Greek word. They describe Selfish, self-centered people are blaming, complaining, describes selfish, self-centered people. Blameless describes people who are innocent. That's the attitude. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. That word innocent means without horns. It describes a person who's humble. Do you know that loving one another in a church, caring for one another in church requires that sometimes, maybe many times, you don't get your way. But you would rather lose your way than to bring disruption to the body of Christ. You don't fight with horns. You're not aggressive in your attack. You're humble before the Lord, seeking to exalt him. Charles Spurgeon said, is the word used of people who speak and act without fangs, who carry arrows dipped in love and whose only sword is the word of God. Thirdly, living joyfully is a life of persevering in the purpose of God. And I want to move quickly to the conclusion here because what Paul does here is he uses three images. He takes us to the universe, to the starry heavens, and he shows us how we are to live. We are in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We know that. So how do we live? Paul says you shine like lights. Not, not shining like lights to be a contrast with the darkness, but to expose the darkness and to expound the truth of the gospel. That's why Paul says... You're shining as lights in the world for a reason. You're holding fast to the word of life. Second image he uses is from the race. Paul says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering or before that, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I ran the race well 
And as I was running the race and communicating to you the word of God and the way of God, you listened and you responded and you obeyed. And then he takes us to the place of sacrifice. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Paul says, I'm willing to lose everything. I'm willing to lose my life. I'm willing to give my life for you people in Philippi so that there would be joy in your hearts and joy in your church, no matter what it costs. How many of us really want real joy? It's costly. And it costs the complete sacrifice of our lives to Jesus as Lord expressed in our genuine love and care for one another. One of my friends tells the story of a man that was in the hip-hop artist industry that started coming to his church. And this guy, along the way, got convicted of his sin and gave his life to Jesus and began to serve Jesus. One day he met with my friend and my friend in a book he wrote, wrote this word, these words. When the hip hop artist got saved and started growing in Christ, he came to my friend one day and this is what he said. Many in this world, this hip hop world come from nothing and they're after glory. They want glory. They want fame. They want recognition. They believe that one day they will make it big. And they can stand before the world and say, I was nothing and now I have everything. And in this world, we are taught that when we make it big, we ought to flaunt it. The glitter, the glamour, the swag, the stage, the show, the recording labels, the fans, the fame. He looked at my friend and said, we call it in the industry getting our shine on. And then he said, I've been there. And I've tasted that success. It cannot begin to compare with the light of the glory of God shining in my heart and then being able to live in the world so that the light of the gospel shines through me. Why don't we decide as believers, as a part of this wonderful church, that we're going to get our shine on and it has nothing to do with us? We don't want anybody to remember our name or recognize us for anything except we were lights for the Lord Jesus in our world, wherever we are. Father, we thank you for your deep desire for every one of us in this room that we would know the fullness of your joy. And I pray that you would help us even this week to pursue that joy by being obedient, 
by pursuing holiness and by persevering wherever we are and being lights that shine in our darkness. You are indeed able to deliver us from wherever we are in that darkness today and bring to our hearts the light, the peace, and the joy of your presence. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.